Captain Thomas Sylvester began the routine interrogation of a prisoner who had been caught wandering around Neuhaus. Without flinching, the nondescript, bespectacled man admitted he was Germany's Reichsfuhrer and architect of the Nazi death camps. Heinrich Himmler. He was immediately taken to a doctor who attempted to examine the inside of Himmler's mouth, but the prisoner was reluctant to open it. He jerked his head away, and before anything could be done to stop him, Himmler bit into a hidden potassium cyanide pill and collapsed. He was dead within 15 minutes. Shortly afterward, his body was buried in an unmarked grave near Lüneburg. The exact location remains unknown. Well, we were bound to get to some of the worst people who somehow accumulated the most power and did the most damage. And one of those people, without doubt, is Heinrich Luitpold Himmler. He was, of course, Germany's Reichsführer, and he was the head of the SS, as well as a leading member of the Nazi party. And for a while, he was probably Hitler's 2IC. And certainly in some respects, um, he outdid the Fuhrer. And those are the things that we'll talk about in this episode of Blind History. It's good to have Anthony Meadere here with me. This is really an unpalatably horrible human. Yeah, he's an absolute piece of shit. You know, it's <laughs> it's they should have put him down when he was a student under his father. But, you know, when we talk about that period, I might have mentioned it before, but, you know, my dad was born in 1937 in Germany, mm. effectively two years before the Second World War. And my dad's father was killed in the Second World War. So often, you know, when we brought up in South Africa, you know, it's an ex-British colony, da-da-da, all of that. But we always sought from the German side. And when I did speak to my dad about it, he said very, very little. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for the German population and that, they just don't like to talk about it. It's just horrible what everybody went through during that time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of our own family history. You know, my uncle got a Reichmark from Adolf Hitler when he was younger. The family came from just outside Nuremberg, which was a real stronghold for the Nazi party. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, they saw that this Adolf Hitler and his, and his crew were actually making big strides to improve Germany after what they called the shackles of Versailles. So after the First World War, they basically strung Germany down from an economy perspective. They didn't give them any opportunities. And I suppose that... Hitler and his crew were seen originally as salvation, but boy, did mm. that turn out 100% wrong. Well, Himmler's a good example of this because he grew up without any, you know, giveaway signs that he was a complete psychopath. He grew up in a, in a nice family. His father was a tutor to the, the prince of Bavaria. He grew up in, in Munich. Um, he was a good student. He worked very hard. They didn't have a lot of money, but he seemed like a humble guy. His father raised him to believe a couple of things that were good. You know, he was raised as a strict Catholic and he said things like he wrote in his, in his diary that he would never give up on the church or on God. Uh, that obviously with the story of his life as it unfolded was untrue, but his father also imbued him with a, a sense that Germans were superior, racially superior, that mm -hmm. they had earned their place in history and that he came from a family and from a, a nation of people who had done amazing things. Of course, that can give you pride, 
uh, but it can also give you a false sense of superiority. And it's clear which one Himmler grew up with. Yeah, agreed. You know, and if you look at it, um, he, he enjoyed chess, the harpsichord, stamp collecting, uh, gardening, you know, that, I mean. And he had glasses. He had glasses. Uh, Pol Pot would have killed him. <laughs> you know, he and the following episodes, chief protagonist have one thing in common. They eventually ended up being really, really good at figuring out the most efficient way to kill people. Mm. And we're not talking about war. We're talking about actual genocide. We're talking about finding yeah. a group of people and killing them as quickly, as effectively as possible. Um, and, and he had, you know, he had compatriots and that like Heydrich, but let's go back to the beginning of his story. Cause in the beginning, he wanted to become a farmer. I mean, he was actively interested in farming. He even wanted to emigrate at one point because he didn't like the way Germany was headed. But luckily or unluckily for history, he discovered the Nazi party, uh, mostly because he was unemployed, which I think was probably true for a lot of people. So he joined the Nazi party and he was actually one of uh, the, the, the main supporters of a guy who was trying to ask Hitler at that point because Hitler was in jail, obviously. And he spent a lot of time working really hard, proving himself as an efficient administrator. Uh, on his motorbike, he would ride around giving inflammatory speeches. He was by no means, uh, you know, a, a boring individual or someone that you wouldn't have taken notice of. But obviously, upon reading Mein Kampf, he decided that he'd found the leader he really wanted to follow and uh, became insanely devoted to Hitler from that point on and his loyalty almost unquestionably to the the, the just about before the very end was uh, was right up there. Hitler knew he could depend on this guy, right? Yeah, and I think Hitler called him loyal Heinrich because of his complete devotion with him. But as he grew up, there were quite a few disappointments in his life, and uh, one of them was actually this push from Hitler that tried to take over the government. As you rightly mentioned, he was thrown in jail, but he lost his job and he had to move back with his parents. He was disappointed mm -hmm. that his parents didn't have money because he couldn't do his post-grad in agriculture. So there was, he seemed to have a lot of uh, disappointments going through his life. And he was also hated in school because he used to rat on his friends because it, his father was in charge. Yeah. So he wasn't very well liked. And I think just generally he had a very poor relationship family-wise. He had virtually no relationship with his son. He, he he had a good relationship with his daughter because she was as psychotic as he was. But ultimately, in the end, he was this cold, emotionless person. What do we know about his wife? His wife had a very keen interest, obviously, in the Nazi party and the way they thought, uh, mm -hmm. together with their daughter. And, they, and on his passing away, they were initially undercover, very much um, supported of trying to rebuild some sort of new regime, uh, which never, ever took off. But ultimately, he didn't really care about her. So I'm not sure how she reacted to it because he had a mistress and he mm -hmm. had a completely separate life with the mistress where he had an illegitimate child yeah. as well. Well, it's interesting that he, he also used to tell his soldiers and part of the plan with the SS was to recruit these ethnically pure, superior men. He would, he would look at the photographs of every single person they recruited to the SS. And if he picked up any defect, they would be thrown out. Um, and his, his job there, he said, was to restock the Aryan nation, to restock German purity, blood purity, by forcing these SS men to have children with as many women as they could find. 
obviously also superior German women. But essentially, monogamy was not necessary. It wasn't an important thing. So this tells you something about his own standards for his poor wife, Margareta, right? And he did have yeah. kids. He had Gudrun, Helga, and Nanette. And uh, not not the greatest uh, father, as you mentioned earlier, but certainly not not among the worst in that respect, because you would think that he would be terrible everywhere and equally. But, you know, someone who tends to his garden, likes to play the harpsichord, uh, mm. but also is okay with, with, you know, offing six million people just because he doesn't agree with their, their ethnicity. Not exactly a, a, a solid human being, this. And actually, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I mean, he was quite far from the Aryan race. I mean, he struggled, yeah. to, he struggled to, um, keep up in the army. He wanted to be a soldier, but he never made it. So no. he was quite a, a weak, um, made of weak constitution, let's say. And, he would have um, been, he would have been disappointed in his own application if it had passed over his desk. Definitely. And then he developed a, like a, a mythical ethos of folklore of, of the German uh, race going back many, many centuries. And he brought that to, and then a lot of dark magic. Occult stuff, yeah. Yeah, all those type of things that he brought into, and many of the Nazis actually, for that matter, were like that. Yeah, he, he enjoyed and employed all of these elements in trying to create this fiction that the Germans were superior to everyone else. And, you know, he used a lot of esoteric symbolism. There were rituals. The SS was kind of a quasi religious organization as much as it was this extraordinarily efficient and very, very dangerous Gestapo military and police tool. And the SS started off under him. He took it from being a very, very small organization, like, you know, a couple of hundred people into a million strong paramilitary group. And they, of course, controlled the concentration camps, which will forever go down as one of the most dishonorable things to have been committed by human beings. But he was absolutely efficient and and ruled everything with an iron fist. He had direct lines of communication. He was informed about everything. He knew exactly what was going on and where and how. And supposedly when he gave the orders to implement the final solution, uh, chose Auschwitz as the perfect example of what one of these concentration camps should be, he visited there once or twice and he actually watched as they sifted through the people who arrived on the trains. You know, the weaker ones were obviously immediately killed, sent straight to the gas chambers. The stronger ones were put to work and would die of exhaustion or worse. Um, but he went and looked through a little uh, keyhole as they gassed a number of the, the, the people who'd just been taken off the train and were weak and totally unemotional said, look, actually, I don't care how you guys do it. Just get it done. Hitler didn't actually visit the concentration camps, whereas Himmler constantly visited them. And, you know, there's some horrible photographs and that just gives you an idea of a psychotic individual walking next to these emaciated people, you know, they, they like, look like skeletons. Mm. And in the beginning, it was just inefficient. He was a bureaucrat through and through, and, and he pushed these people hard to keep records, etc. And he set quotas for the concentration camps of how many people you need to kill uh, every day and every month you need to keep up with the quotas. And when it started getting inefficient, and he said it was very, very hard for the executioners, they brought in the gas chambers as a more efficient way Mm -hmm. of achieving their goals, 11 to 14 million people ultimately in the end. You know, you hear about businesses and how you have targets that you have to reach in terms of profits and maybe bringing down costs. And that he applied that kind of, I suppose, balance sheet to human lives. It's just extraordinary to think that this was all going mm -hmm. on. And 
and he was completely unemotional about it. He he obviously started off with this SS group, then he built up the Einsatzgruppen, and he he built these extermination camps. It was all part of his. It was all his brainchild. He also took over eventually the German police, the the Gestapo, the secret state police, um, and controlled the Waffen SS, which is a military branch of the SS. He was a very powerful man in Germany in the 1940s. I mean, early, early 1940s, late 1930s. People said that he was basically Hitler's 2IC. And there were others who were vying for that position, you know, people like mm. Goering and people like, um, like, like Goebbels, perhaps, um, and, and others uh, in the military. But he also ruthlessly had anyone who had seen a different side of him or anyone who had anything on him taken out as well. I mean, mm. Ernst Rohm, who was the chief of the Sturmabteilung, the, the SA, uh, he just had him killed after the Night of the Long Knives. You know, they basically, he, he went in and eviscerated any enemies of Hitler's, but also conveniently any enemies of his own and uh, took over all of those jobs as well. So he eliminated what they called the brown shirts. Not a problem for him to just take them out. You know, if they were a problem for him and problem for Hitler, then they needed to go. Exactly, 100%. And then he brought in his black shirted SS that came in. And, and, you know, that's what we see in those massive marches and that you've got these black shirts. They brought absolute fear. Because of the issue of the, of the concentration camps and the Jews in particular, a lot of people wonder whether he was anti-Semitic from the start. And there's no real evidence of that. But there were a lot of people putting pamphlets out all over Germany, blaming the Jews for all the things that they didn't like about Germany post-World War I. Um, and there was a lot of propaganda to which he must have been susceptible. He certainly took in a lot of it. He read everything voraciously. And I think it also suited him to be able to blame the Jews rather than let his ideas of racial superiority uh, fall by the wayside. Mm. And of course, he personally, therefore, is given the ignominy, the dishonor of being the man who made the decision to take out some 6 million Jews, um, between 200 and 500,000 Romani people, gypsies, and other victims. The total number of civilians you mentioned earlier, between 11 and 14 million people. Those are civilians. You know, we're not talking about the ones that were taken out in war by the SS, the Waffen SS, for example. And he was for a little while a military commander too. Hitler appointed him as the commander of the replacement army. And he did Mm -hmm. so badly in that job. He was, he was meant to be in charge of the army group Upper Rhine and the group Vistula. And after he failed to achieve any of that, Hitler just replaced him in those posts. Yeah, he was he was very very poor taking over the army. That's clearly not something that he was should have stuck to chicken farming. I wish he would have stuck to chicken farming right oh, yeah. at the beginning because apparently he was quite a good chicken farmer. So mm. the word has it. But ultimately, in the end, yes, yeah, so that's when it started unraveling because he saw what was coming, and he he realized now they were up against it. So then he started engaging first with the Soviets uh, mm-hmm. in the north, and then later on with Americans um, under Eisenhower. And none of them wanted anything to do with him. And then Hitler heard about it. Just to add before that, because his his idea was like he could see it all falling apart. And by then Hitler had become a bit of a madman. And there was no way that they could they could win this war. So Himmler made the decision that he was going to approach the Allies in various ways and essentially promised them a surrender on the Western Front, which would have obviously saved millions of lives. But he wasn't necessarily in a position to be able to do that. Um, and he did this all behind Hitler's back. And as we know, Hitler did not take kindly to someone plotting against him. 
We know this because obviously in, in North Africa, we, we had this brilliant, brilliant general who had decided, mm. uh, against all the advice to plot against Hitler and put a bomb in his bunker, essentially, while he was busy making the plans for, uh, part of the Russian campaign. And, uh, Hitler mercilessly descended on all the plotters and took them out at the knees without even a second thought to, to whether or not they were useful to him. If you were disloyal in his book, that counted against you in every way. And Hit Hitler was particularly fond of Himmler because of his loyalty. So you can imagine how poorly he reacted to hearing the news on British radio, of all places, that Himmler was trying to contact the Allies to make a deal. What was interesting, though, is that he got away with it, so to speak, because he he sort of headed for the hills. And this was literally one day before Hitler committed suicide. And then he was drifting around aimlessly. He had all false documents. He shaved off his moustache. And I've worked against him because nobody actually had perfect papers at the time. So mm -hmm. they brought him in for questioning, and then they realized who they'd actually caught. But like many of the top echelon of the Nazis, they had um, cyanide in one of their teeth that they just bit into and, and he committed suicide. I always wonder about that. You know, these, these top Nazis were all given this, this poison that they could, they could break this little ampule and then the poison would go into their system and they'd die very quickly. Um, and all of them said yes to this. I always wonder, like, what if they were chewing on something by mistake and broke the capsule? You know, you'd have to chew very, very carefully. But nonetheless, what you say is absolutely right. He was wandering around with his bodyguards. And he said, no, no, I'm, my name is Heinrich, something close to that. Uh, and they didn't think anything. But while he was in, in the prisoner of war camp, being treated just like the other prisoners, he obviously got a little bit annoyed because he was full of himself. And, you know, he was important. Mm -hmm. He was Heinrich Himmler. So he, he demanded to speak to the, the, the authorities in the, in the prisoner of war camp and then announced that he was, Heinrich Himmler, and they didn't give him special treatment. They stripped him naked, checked him for, you know, poison, uh, started to process him as a, a special case. And uh, that was about the time we realized the gig was up and he had to bite into this capsule of cyanide. And he died within, I think, 12 minutes, even though they tried their best to revive him because they wanted to put him on trial. You know, they didn't yeah. keep him alive because they were they were trying to save the guy. They They wanted to put him on trial along with and the others at the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, and I think it was important he needed to pay for the, all the atrocities, but um, yeah. at least that part of it, the wheel turned because um, he was stripped naked, like you said. He at mm. least had a small part of what he did to, to millions and millions. It's 100% right. He's probably one of the most studied person from a psychological perspective since then to work out what the hell went wrong with him. You know, he had his parents were maybe a little bit more strict than normal parents, but we don't know mm -hmm. what was said behind closed doors, but somebody that liked chess and the harpsichord and a little bit of tinkering in the garden could be this horrible human being. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of interest there. And obviously people are also interested in exactly how he managed to persuade so many Germans, particularly in the SS, but everywhere else in society as well, that they were on some, moral crusade, that they were doing something good. And there's been a lot written recently about how, you know, there's this idea that you can actually confuse uh, an entire population. You can create a mass psychosis. And if, if any example in history serves as an example of this, then it has to be the way that the entire German population was mobilized against not only 
the enemy ally nations, but also civilians, Jews, people with disabilities, people who just didn't fit into the Nazi picture of what was a utopia they would never achieve. And certainly all of the the designs around the SS were all personally put together by by Himmler. He he had a very good eye for propaganda, for messaging, and for keeping that story, that narrative of German superiority alive. A, a very, very scary human being, and certainly not someone who, who we wish to have reappear in, in history later on. Although there are examples, as you will see in the next episode of Blind History, of people millions of miles away who were just as evil and mm -hmm. did just as much damage without an inkling of a conscience. But I think as well, you answered a lot of questions on psychologies because uh, he said one saying that if Hitler were to tell him to shoot his mother, he would do it and uh, be proud of the Fuhrer's confidence. So this unconditional loyalty was one of the driving forces, surely. I thought he thought of Hitler some kind of God. Well, it's interesting you say that because Hitler described his treachery on, on the, in that last week of his life when he was in the bunker in Berlin and he heard about what Himmler was doing, plotting against him. He, see, he called it the greatest betrayal in history, Hitler, because he, he was so yeah. convinced that Himmler was on his side every step of the way. So he was genuinely uh, upset and offended and probably very angry, knowing the little man, uh, about Himmler's ultimate treachery and, and betrayal. Yeah. But they, I mean, they were toast. I don't know what difference it made. <laughs> <laughs> made, no, made no difference. Himmler yeah. even had a meeting with uh, Admiral Karl Dönitz, who was Hitler's successor and, and the the second Führer, second and last Führer of that Reich. And he said, I'll help you if you make me too icy. And Donitz said, nah, you know what? Don't worry about it. I think I'll do without you, which was probably a good decision too. It was probably 100%, although that didn't last very long anyway. No, but at least Donitz got away with life in prison, whereas Himmler, of course, was dead. Yeah. When you unpack and you go into more detail, there's just so much more below the surface, uh, you know, like his, him and his mistress sitting drinking tea in their office or wherever it was with cutlery made from bones and, oh and the books put together with human skin. It's just absolutely frightening. Historian Wolfgang Sauer says that although Himmler was pedantic, dogmatic and dull, he emerged under Hitler as second in actual power and his strength, according to to most of these historians lay in a combination of unusual shrewdness, burning ambition, and this loyalty that we speak about, this servile loyalty to Hitler. And sadism. He was sadistic to the end. Yeah. Well, there are lots of other people that we can associate with him, but I think uh, after Hitler, he's probably the most interesting to those of us who are curious about the worst people in history. This guy gets into that category without even trying. The world's greatest mass murderer. Himmler, what a son of a bitch. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everywhere he went during his career, he had little gardens, and he used to tend to them himself. And he had this whole story about the Germans must go back to nature. You know, while he's reading a book with the leather made out of the skull of one of his victims. <laughs>